Thanks for showing up today um, to another in the series of uh, Comparative Media Insights. And today we're going to hear from Anne Balsamo. Anne is a professor in the Interactive Media Division of the School of Cinematic Arts and in the School of Communication in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at USC. And Anne is a really, I mean, Anne has, a, has been around. She's seen a number of the more interesting programs in the country. So USC, of course, is her most recent, but she's also been at Stanford and at Georgia Tech. Uh, good to have you here at MIT where you can sort of continue the, the comparative analysis. Anne has also worked at, um, at Xerox Park, where she was a principal scientist between 1999 and 2002. Anne is really prominent in the area of thinking about um, technology and gender, I think really the leader in the, the thought leader in the sector. Uh, her latest book, and I think we'll hear some about that, is called Designing Culture, the Technological Imagination at Work. Just came out uh, at du with Duke University Press uh, this year. And it's a transmedia project. It has a DVD, a website that I saw up there on the screen as she was getting ready. So um, maybe we'll take a look at that. And also, also author of Technologies of the Gendered Body, Reading Cyborg Women, also with Duke from 96. So Anne, let's get started. Look forward to hearing your comments today. Thank you. I have my, uh, my timer. Um, thank you, William, actually, for the uh, invitation to present. And um, I'm delighted to see everyone. I know it's kind of late in the month for people to be sitting in a, in a uh, lecture hall, but um, I appreciate your time and attention these few days before Christmas. And um, I hope everyone has a great holiday. Today, um, I am going to take the opportunity, and I'm really um, th oops, thankful to be able to present, um, kind of give you a tour about the book, which is um, part of what I call a transmedia project. We've got some really interesting uh, uh, visuals going on here, unintentional, but we'll work through that. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the book, show you a few projects that I've been involved with, digital media projects uh, throughout the last decade or so. And then the last bit of the uh, presentation, I'll focus on um, talking a little bit about the new work that's going on and the new research that I'm um, kind of engaged in. So this uh, project, Designing Culture, uh, it started pretty soon after my uh, previous book was published, so that would have been 1996, so say 1997, 98, um, and I stand here before you as the poster child for um, slow scholarship. So this is a book that's been in the works for a, a very long time, but as you'll see, the Transmedia Project involved not only writing a print-based book, but also do, doing other things of uh, digital media that were very big and large, and for me were examples of what at the time I was calling um, works of public humanities that I understand you might call um, applied humanities. So that work, although it took me into many other domains than the academy and it took its own time and so on, was always conceptualized as um, work that was um, exploring a set of questions, questions at the heart of this project called Designing Culture, and so I'll try to um, kind of illuminate those and so on. In the end, the, uh, the Designing Culture project, when I say it's a transmedia project, it's realized in um, print, the book that just came out in July, um, a DVD, a museum exhibit, interactive walls, for which I've written wall books that are 
about as uh, kind of effortful as book writing is. Um, a set of interactive maps, some video primers. These are short pieces that I use as kind of a um, video uh, kind of pedagogy materials, and then a blog that kind of archives material and keeps things up to date in terms of new projects. So the book, which was written as these projects kind of kind of went on and in the process of doing these uh, digital kind of media projects and these kind of techno-cultural projects and so on, has several chapters, one of which um, that frames the entire kind of book is called Taking Culture Seriously in the Age of Innovation. And uh, I think that one of the things I want to say about this book is that it's not just a work of scholarship, but I'm going to tell you right out, it's a manifesto. And it's a manifesto for taking culture seriously and an overdue, in a, in a kind of argument that it's well overdue, that we put culture at the beginning of the innovation process rather than the end. And the entire book is a meditation about why I think that's important. Um, several of the chapters reflect on the work that we did at Xerox Park, not only the work of the collaborative design group that I was a part of, but then my own my own design work, my own media design work. Um, the final chapter, which is misspelt in here, called Desigging Work, Desigging Learning, should be Designing <laughs> Learning, um, it turns my attention to the work of the Research Institute and the Research University. And so I look at the role of uh, the digital humanities in producing technocultural innovation. And then finally, the coda of the book is um, an answer to the question that I got repeatedly over 10 years, which is why write a book in a digital age if all of your work is now working on or um, involving the production of digital media artifacts. And the final chapter, which I won't go into today, really explains why I wrote this book and um, the polemic of the work of the book, in a, the cultural work of a book in a digital age. The broad premise is really an extended set of investigations, provocations, studies about the relationship between innovation and culture. And the entire book project starts with a uh, cultural inventory of kind of innovation markers, um, of which I won't go into now, but kind of tracks what we think about innovation and how I think our thinking about innovation itself needs to change. The subtitle of the book, it's called The Technological Imagination at Work. And this is a uh, topic that I also have been working on as much as a kind of person to investigate what this imagination is, how it manifests, how it's shaped, how it's cultivated, and how it can be inspired to think differently in the future. I define it as the quality of mind that, imagine, that enables people to think with technology to transform what is known into what is possible. This imagination is performative. It improvises within constraints to create something new. The, um, the resonance with C. Wright Mills and the notion of the sociological imagination is uh, intentional here. This was an imagination that I explored in the process of doing my first book, which was called Technologies of the Gendered Body, Reading Cyborg Woman, Women. And the new work draws on and builds off of the research that was collected in this first book. My entire project is looking at the cultural implications of emergent technologies. I've been doing that since I was a graduate student at University of Illinois in the mid-1980s. 
in the 80s into the early 90s, my dissertation research focused on the gendered implications of emergent biotechnologies. And I looked at things like female bodybuilding, cosmetic surgery, in vitro fertilization. And as I was talking with the students at lunch, one of the opportunities I had was to actually look at um, a kind of domain of technology as it was emerging out of the lab and into the popular imagination, and that was virtual reality. That was preceded by a kind of online ethnographic investigation. I was lurking and engaging in online conversations with scientists who belonged to the Usenet group Psy Virtual Worlds, and I was watching that community of researchers in distributed locations around the world um, report on their research work on issues of kind of collaborative knowledge formation and so on, right at the time that a couple big popular events were happening to popularize this notion of virtual reality. And so the, um, the chapter, which is called the, the, um, the Virtual Body in Cyberspace, looks at the emergence of virtual reality kind of coming out of the labs and into the popular into popular culture and the way in which that technology that embryonic technology which was not called virtual reality by the scientists but were rather called virtual worlds or telepresence or immersive experiences how that um, how those technologies those embryonic technologies got narrativized and how they got won over to particular kind of ideological programs and to particular um, kind of scientific projects that uh, that chapter really was the opportunity to study a technology that wasn't yet sedimented, that hadn't yet been fixed in a kind of photographic sense by the kind of the imagination of the popular. Um, I then turned my attention to um, what then was called networked, communi- uh, networked computer communication, which was, again, before the web had happened, um, to look at the way in which new information technologies, this is a piece called Feminism for the Incurably Informed, um, the way in which new communication technologies were going to present a whole host of cultural problems and opportunities and projects that I thought not only did feminists need to be watching very carefully, but that we, more in general, kind of cultural critics, cultural scholars, needed to be watching very closely. That whole effort was um, an exploration in how one genders the technological imagination. So I was looking at this manifestation of the technological imagination and then understanding or trying to prize how one genders that imagination. I argue that it is through the technological imagination that people engage the material of the world to create the foundation for future world making. And from a feminist perspective, my question at the end of that book was, this imagination asks not only what can be done, but as it's inflected through feminism, it should also ask, more importantly, what should be done. The first project of digital design that I got involved with that I'm not going to show you now, um, but I'll just kind of make a gesture towards, was to do an um, interactive documentary based on the fourth UN conference on women that was held in Beijing in 1995. I had just finished the first book. I had just gotten tenure. It gave me the privilege to turn my attention not to writing more text-based articles, but to really take on the project of now designing kind of actual new technologies. 
one of the things that had happened for me at the end of the book is that I had learned how to be a very good cultural critic, but I couldn't answer the basic question my students kept asking me, which is why and how does your cultural criticism inform our design practices? And I couldn't answer that. And in fact, the acknowledgments in this book go back to those original questions and say, I think I now know how to answer that question. But that took me about 15 years to figure that out. So this project I took on as an effort to retool and to re-educate myself in how does cultural theory and cultural criticism kind of inform or shape or um, animate the technological imagination that's going to be involved in creating a digital experience for this um, international conference. And it was a multi-phased um, process, which would make sense given that my background is in cultural theory and I understand technologies as assemblages and articulations. It involved taking a, a delegation of female students from Georgia Tech, registering as an official NGO, NGO, which gave us lobbying privileges so that we were able to lobby the UN, the official um, US uh, delegation um, to the UN conference. We were able to lobby them on issues having to do with the education of women in science and technology. Um, this was before STEM was actually kind of uh, on, the, uh, on the agenda. Um, we had lobbying privileges, we did demonstrations, we, um, in order to fund this, I video produced a, uh, the first piece of recruiting material that Georgia Tech ever had that was aimed at female students. So in exchange for getting money to take the delegation to Beijing, I did the video for them um, on recruiting women to Georgia Tech. And we built an interactive um, ritual not a documentary. The first version was an inter interactive ritual, a call and response ritual called Women of the World Talk Back that was designed to, to um, uh, facilitate our conversations with other people attending the NGO forum. While we were at the NGO forum during that 17 days and then doing our, um, our uh, um, lobbying and so on, we gathered documentation footage, we gathered materials, we interviewed people and so on, asking them about their agenda, especially women having to do with technology or media. And when we brought that back, we then started reconceptualizing the ritual-based project as a project of an interactive documentary about this event, which at the time, 1995, was, as far as we know, the largest gathering of women in the history of the planet. So that was um, April, September. Well, April, we started the project. September, we went to the, um, the NGO. We got back mid-September. And in that intervening time, the web exploded. And all of the work that we had done, all the material we had collected was very video heavy. So by the time we got back and we started processing the, um, the material, it was in a format and our original structure was in a format that was not able to be distributed through the early days of the web. So up until the time that this book, the new book, circulates, this interactive documentary will have never circulated. So the first time that it's circulating is now as a piece of pretty old dusty media um, at the back of the book that will probably in about 18 months be unreadable because the videos will just disintegrate. So one of the very first things I learned, of course, is that um, technological innovation is historically specific and can change in a heartbeat. So I took this, uh, this early experience at myself retooling to produce 
digital media and to bring the kind of insights of cultural criticism and cultural theory to the, uh, to the process of building new technologies. Um, I took these as and kind of started conceptualizing them as lessons learned about technocultural innovation, and these are the lessons that are recounted in the book and um, kind of serve as the kind of the, the structure of the uh, stories in the book. And to begin, I want to argue, as many of you I'm sure will be sympathetic to, that innovation is not an object, it is a process, and probably even more so as much an, a performance and a act of storytelling as it is anything else. They are historically specific accomplishments and that the process of innovation, as I understand now, involves and manifests the dual logic of technological reproduction. Part of the, the work of the book is to elaborate what I mean by a reproductive theory of technology. This is done in the chapter called Gendering the Technological Imagination. This is work that will be a familiar and able to grasp, easily grasped, if people kind of ha understand the deep background coming from Donna Haraway, Lucy Suchman, Lee Starr, and so on. Um, it's work that um, is deeply informed by feminist philosophy of science and sets the stage for, I think, what will come later, which um, what we're hoping is more, more active engagements between feminist scholars and kind of technological phenomenon. And I'm not going to go into this now. But as I was looking and understanding this kind of notion of the, tech, the reproductive logic of technology, I kept kind of under, pushing back to who are the agents of technological reproduction and how is it in the context of the creation of new technologies, how is it that people have a role to play in the kind of reproduction of new technologies. And this led me to focus on the role of designers and in particular the designers who kind of work on that kind of very nascent stage of building emergent or kind of innovative technologies. And so the focus of the, um, or the kind of meaning of the entire kind of topic of this, of this project, the designing culture, is really looking at the way in which design and design practices and the scene of design is both structured, these are both structured by culture and then are the conditions and the infrastructures whereby culture is reproduced. So this leads me to other kind of insights about the process of innovation that focuses more specifically on the acts and the praxis of designing, where praxis is the way in which theory and practice um, come together. That designing, of course, is inter inherently multidisciplinary, that it is as much about social negotiations as it is about the manifestation of creativity, that designing is a process whereby the materiality of the world becomes meaningful, and that designing and every opportunity of designing presents the opening to do things differently. This was the work that brought me to uh, Xerox Park. So after I had an opportunity to start working kind of on my own kind of technological innovations in the form of feminist media activism and this new interactive documentary, um, I met up with um, Rich Gold, who was a uh, research scientist at Xerox Park, and really got involved in a set of deep discussions with him about the contributions to a collaborative project from the four creative, what he would call the four creative disciplines, art, science, design, and engineering. And so he and I had a conversation about a year-long conversation about what are the, um, 
what are the kind of overlaps and the distinctions of these four creative different um, disciplines, and where do the uh, kind of where do the frictions happen, and where are the where are the kind of um, the kind of moments of sympathy? And one of the questions that really perplexed him that I kept asking, which is, what box do you put the humanists in? And he. An incredibly, incredibly, you know, bright, brilliant, brilliant man, but he just couldn't understand where actually to put the humanist. And finally, um, in a, a kind of after one kind of conversation, he said, "I think you need to come here." So um, it was based on that kind of asking a question that he just couldn't parse that I got the invitation to apply for a position at Park to join his group. His group was called Research and Experimental Documents. Um, these are us and a, uh, uh, a, a kind of magazine article kind of during our heyday. And indeed, the eight of us had... Um, had backgrounds in all of the creative disciplines, although everyone at the time was there at Xerox Park employed as a research scientist, not necessarily research engineers. And, um, you know, there were lighting designers and game designers, and uh, Rich himself was a performance artist and an, ex um, an experimental musician, um, an architect who'd actually gotten his architect degree from here, MIT, um, PhD in mechanical engineering, a sound designer from Harvard. Um, Matt Gorbett had freshly come from the Media Lab. Um, we had videographers and so on, and my um, my kind of invitation to join the group was to join the group as a techno-humanist. The term digital humanist hadn't kind of come to the fore yet. It wasn't a meme that was circulating. Um, and I had been calling myself a techno-humanist, someone who works on the, the kind of relationship between technology and the humanities or technology and the human. And so I joined the group as a techno-humanist and um, really kind of pushed the boundaries at the time of what um, even the park scientists understood about the humanities so that after I gave my job talk one of the things that um, that I heard that they discussed was they didn't have the category of humanist and so they thought that well it was okay I could be hired because um, they kept insisting that I was a humanitarian so one of the things that I needed to do once I got to park was start um, propagating this notion of the humanities and being a humanist and what a humanist, and it wasn't that there weren't humanists there. They were, they just didn't operate under that mantle. So there were Jeffrey, you know, um, there were linguists and anthropologists, Lucy Suchman and so on, doing, um, you know, pretty interesting cultural kind of theoretical work, ethnographic work and so on. But the whole research center itself did not have that category of humanist. So that was my project at um, Park at one level, which was to reflect on the role of the humanist in the process of technological innovation. Now, one of the things that um, we had the opportunity to do as a group was um, to produce a public demonstration of the embryonic research going on at Park that was supposed to signify innovation for the San Jose um, Science Center, the San Jose Tech, uh, Tech Museum. And this invitation came kind of to Park, bounced around, finally came to our group. And we decided that what we would do is actually demonstrate not the innovations that were going on at Park in the terms that the scientists and engineers 
we're kind of using and so on, but that we would think five to 10 years out from their already bleeding edge research to put their research into a, um, a different context. That in, in essence, re-narrativized the research in a different cultural context. So we re-devi- re- redefined a number of embryonic research projects um, as the basis for the creation of new reading experiences in the future. So we created this museum exhibit called Experiments in the Future of Reading um, that involved the creation of about 13 new reading devices. Each one was based on some sort of research project going on at PARC, but none of the projects had conceptualized their work as new reading devices. And I'll show you some of those later. So after um, that experience of Xerox Park and getting to work with this group, I was pretty much hooked on a number of things. One is I knew that from there on out, I would be absolutely um, best suited doing collaborative work in an interdisciplinary team, that I had a role to play in technological innovation projects, but that I wasn't a technological innovator on my own, that in fact I was only um, interested in kind of working in kind of multiple hybrid hydra groups. Um, We had, you know, I had left a tenured position at Georgia Tech to take the position in industry. There is no tenure in industry, and this was right around the dot the dot-com bust days in Silicon Valley. So there was one fatal Friday when 60 people at Xerox Park were laid off, including our entire research group. There was some shady dealings about a couple of us were um, asked to come back, and um, two of us in particular, and I was one of them. And um, in solidarity, we said no. And we said, no, we're going to leave. We're going to leave with everyone else because we're better together than we are apart. And um, after we left, we tried to, you know, different configurations, tried to build um, a, a startup company and so on. And, it, and in fact, four of us ended up building um, a small startup company called Anami Labs, um, whose uh, mantra was, we build cultural technologies. But the questions that I kind of took with me from the kind of experience working at RED and then also the experiences of working at uh, Anami Labs was that I was very interested in the future of reading and writing in a digital age because reading and writing are cultural reproductive practices. These are the ways in which culture gets reproduced over time, over place, from generation to generation. I wasn't looking at reading and writing specifically as literacies, but as reproductive kind of modes. I continued the work on looking at the role of the body in knowledge formation. That was work that started in the first book that kind of continued through. And then I became more interested in the technological infrastructures of cultural reproduction. This is an age when kind of the plethora of digital culture is exploding. You know, as Henry Jenkins might argue, that we were moving from a kind of consumer-based culture to a prosumer-based culture. And I was interested in what are the infrastructures whereby cultural productions kind of get shaped in ways that are um, kind of subtle and uh, um, actually reproductive rather than just productive. And then my other interest was how, um, how do we teach designing, kind of design thinking, designing practices, and as we move to a kind of culture where everybody has now the capabilities and the tools to be producing new things, where is a design sensibility kind of um, taught and cultivated? 
So I went to um, USC, and um, my first position there was to take a, an administrative position as the managing director for the Institute for Multimedia Literacy. It was at the time a companion effort to the New Media Literacies program that was going on here, so I was well familiar by that time with Henry's work. Um, I think it started probably around the same time. The Institute was funded very differently than the New Media Literacies Project um, by a private anonymous donor, so I'm very much um, based in the cinema school at USC, so it had a very different kind of literacy um, format, which was based on dynamic um, and processual media. Um, I became a faculty member in the interactive media division, and at, after four years, I actually left being the administrator of the IML to move full-time into the interactive media division. And then more recently, I have joined a new lab that's just started at USC called the Innovation Lab, which is in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. And there's shifts that have happened here that, um, that kind of match onto my shifting sense of, um, of research interests and so on. In the interactive media division, while um, at that point the division was still divided between games and everything else, and I was part of the everything else, not the games-based research, and one of my new research tracks in public interactives was really kind of incubated in the context of the interactive media division as a research area that I think is going to be of increasing importance in the future. One of the problems with um, working in the context of the interactive media division is that it is in the cinema school. It doesn't have a lot of resources, lab space, tools, machines, displays are actually really hard to come by. Um, so the opportunity to move my researcher to uh, move my research to the um, to the structure of this new innovation lab came with some research funding for some of my new projects, and it gave me an institutional place to locate some of my new grants. But this work in these different institutional contexts at USC also got, got me thinking um, very carefully about the broader kind of way to communicate the role of the humanities in kind of innovation or technocultural innovation. And so that last chapter in the book, which is called Designing Learning, um, is built on this model of how the digital humanities contributes to cultural innovation. And this is the manifesto piece. This is the model and the diagram that I will put in front of every administrator whenever I get a chance um, that tries to put to rest some of the, um, the struggles and the tensions that are going on in the in the in the humanities right now, which is that there is a role, I think, in um, role to be played by disciplinary programs. And I think that they are one important node in this kind of ensemble called the digital humanities. Um, but that new educational programs, with, you know, which really are new pathways to knowledge creation, um, are always coming out of conversations with disciplinary programs. So one of the things that I do when I give this talk is really illustrate projects from around the country that kind of, to me, illustrate the examples of a new research question that talk about transformative applied research in the digital humanities, offer you know, um, examples of technology prototyping and so on. I think that, um, I mean, one of the other kind of efforts I've been involved with in terms of this notion of looking at the infrastructures of cultural innovation is I've been um, long involved in Haystack, which is where um, 
where we met, and Haystack is the Humanities, Arts, Science, Technology, Advanced Collaboratory. That project um, is kind of one example of humanists leading the way. I'm going to see if I can get back to this. Haystack is one of the projects of humanists leading the way in creating new infrastructures for collaborative knowledge production, kind of dramatically across the disciplines. So not just in, um, kind of within the humanities, but literally across campus. So what I'd like to do now is find my cursor, is show you a couple of the pieces. I lost my cursor. Do you see a cursor? The thing is, I can't find a cursor to select anything. <laughs> oh, darn keystrokes aren't working either. Got it? Oh, there. Okay, great. Oh, 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 oh. something, some wire is loose. Okay, so what I'd like to do is show you a little bit from the, um, the digital uh, part of the, uh, the transmedia project. This is the front page of the, uh, the website. And um, here are the vectors that kind of demonstrate the transmedia effort. So there's the print vector, the DVD vector, which is about the interactive documentary called Women of the World Talk Back. Neither of these are interactive. They're just information sites. But here's the site that's about the, um, the experiments in the future of reading. So what I've done is create um, short vignettes on each of the uh, reading devices. And um, I won't show these, but you can kind of see. Let's see. I'll, show you, I'll just show you the... Um, Progress. I like that. <laughs> yeah. them up in a, in a new kind of uh, interaction. What we've done is we built a device which is basically like a reading companion. It's a big metal dog which is very cute to look at and fun to play with. And what it'll do is it'll just read a story to you. So if you put text in front of the dog like this, then you'll see the dog uses its eyes to show the text on a screen that's on the front of, or that's mounted on the front of the dog here. So if I put my hands in here, you can see the dog, you can see exactly what the dog sees. And then if I activate the dog by pushing the big green button on his shoulder, then I can hear him start to read. The preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America. 
A lot of our original designs had the, had the um, reading robot as a person sitting there reading, but it ended up looking like just a, not a very smart person because it didn't read very well. And when we reshaped it and redesigned it into looking like a dog, it ends up looking like one of the most intelligent dogs you'll ever see, and also a very cute dog, and you can excuse it when it makes mistakes. So it's a lot of fun to play with, and it, it became a very nice uh, synergy of design and the state of the technology that we were demonstrating here. Okay, so that was one of the, uh, that was one of the, uh, the pieces that we built. Our first um, design challenge was this. We needed to explain to the visitor that reading had changed in the past that new technologies alter reading, that reading alters technology, and that in the future, new forms of reading will emerge as new kinds of technologies present themselves to us. I want to talk about a piece called the Reading Wall, which is actually a giant piece. It's uh, 16, three 16 foot long panels, and each panel has parts of uh, episodes in the history of reading. When we decided to do a, an exhibit on the future of reading, uh, we thought it was also very important that we have an exhibit that covers the history of reading and the corollary of the history of writing and the history of communication forms. How do you tell this history in a way that's engaging and interesting and fun for people of different ages and visitors of different ages? So we decided to do it as an interactive wall. Wall reading is a very public kind of reading experience. Traditionally, in historical classical ages, a group, a collective, a culture knew their history by reading what was on the wall. Reading, actually, is very, very closely tied to technology. And the technologies that have changed over time and over place in the world are reflected in the ways people read. So what we've done is we've taken all of the changes in technology, changes in social situations, uh, changes in cultural uh, developments over the history of the world, and we've laid them out in a sort of a timeline of the history of reading. As I push this screen around on the wall, you can see that what happens is the uh, text on the screen changes dynamically to illustrate various developments in reading. Here we're looking at cause and effect, which is an episode in the history of reading about uh, punctuation. So as I push the screen to the left or to the right, we get more information about this particular thing, about punctuation. And I can read through it, and I can read these various paragraphs. It's all keyed on the location of the screen along this wall. So, so the, these clips are all of each of the pieces kind of in operation, um, demonstrating to me one of the things that the print book doesn't do very well, which is I can't describe the dynamic experience or um, the dynamic motion of these devices and that how people's bodies would interact with them or the scale of them and so on. So one of the things um, that I've added here that I developed for um, for the site to also kind of aid my pedagogy, which is one of the um, uh, kind of the purposes of me building this site, is to then ask the question, which is what we did at the end of our kind of designing effort of this um, exhibit, was you know how would we look at these devices if they were out in the world? What would be the cultural implications? Well, Marshall McLuhan, this is one of the traditions I'm trained in. Marshall McLuhan has a, um, a, a very interesting kind of set of questions 
that he suggests are useful to get at the contradictory and multiple implications of any new medium or technology. You know, and the questions have to do with things like, um, what does the technology amplify that was previously kind of under um, underemphasized? What does the technology obsolesce that was previously um, dominant? What does the technology reverse into when it's pushed to the level of its extreme? And what does the technology retrieve that was previously obsolesced? And so I go through each of these and kind of answer the question with a McLuhan quote of what would McLuhan say about these devices? And then for my students, I have another set of pages that asks them to go back to the devices, look at the videos, see what McLuhan would have said, and then I ask, well, what would you say? Because of course, of course, culture changes and the things that, um, that these devices were provocations for and so on. Um, we will read these devices differently now that we're in a different cultural moment. So that's the, uh, the piece that involves a couple pieces of new, um, of new technology. The site also archives something that cannot, does not exist anywhere now, which are the five um, uh, interactive books that I wrote for the wall. So that was my, my media design and interaction and information design and my contribution to the exhibit. Um, we did these three for the exhibit and then as a company um, we did one called, uh, that's about um, a slide through time. It's episodes in the history of communication technologies. These interactive walls are now in about a dozen uh, museums throughout Mexico. And then we did one for the Science Center, the Singapore Science Center. And that one is called Science for All Ages. And in this one, oh, I might, my, inter my internet's too, too slow here. Um, you can move this kind of animated bezel across and actually see what the books are but I'm not loading correctly right now. So these are what I would call interactive wall books. They are an example of a new media genre. They do not exist very widely. I'm the only author of these kinds of books. Um, they, I do have a wall um, accessible to me at USC. Um, I haven't built anything new for them. And actually, I'm pushing now on some new media experiences having to do with interactive walls that are less book-like and, and more kind of immersive. Then there's interactive maps and then some of these, um, these video primers. Um, one of the ones that uh, I like is this very short one called How a Robot Got Its Groove. And it's on gendering a technological kind of artifact. So how does the Asimo bipedal robot get gendered to be male? And you'll see in the, you know, in the show that gets produced to you know, in, introduce Asimo to um, kind of the public audiences that uh, kind of he gets to perform gender kind of throughout this show. So this, um, this site, Again, is you know part of the transmedia project. It um, is as much for me a kind of site that that houses pedagogical materials around the projects. There is no pieces left of the experiments in the future of reading exhibit. They're all in crates. They've been dismantled. The computers are long in the tooth. I mean, that was ten years ago. So they're gone they're gone. So the only thing that exists now to even show what kind of research we were up to or what was going on at Park at the time in some of these, uh, with some of these technologies are these little video clips that I have. So it serves the purpose of archiving, but I didn't want to just archive it. I also wanted to provide a kind of pedagogical um, 
kind of frame for it as well. What I'd like to do then in the last few minutes that I have is actually talk um, a little bit about the new research that builds off of this. I don't need to update, thank you very much. I don't need to download either. <laughs> okay, so this is um, the, the kind of area that my new research is going in, it's not new in the sense that it builds on the work that I had done both at the UN Conference on Women, the interactive documentary that we had done, the work we did at Xerox PARC, the cultural technologies that we built uh, at Anami Labs, and then the work I was trying to incubate and get kind of foment some excitement about in the interactive media division. Um, I call this, uh, this area is public interactives. This is um, something that um, is familiar and will be familiar to you in certain instances. They're devices that serve as the stage for interactive experiences in public settings such as museum, theme parks, outdoor art space, civic plazas, urban streets. They are certainly um, also for communication students, I want to argue, an emergent form of public communication that's designed to engage people in conversations with digital media for the purposes of information exchange, entertainment, education, cultural memory, which is an issue that I'm particularly interested in. Um, of course, public interactives are also an art form, and that's probably its longest history um, as, an, uh, as a form of public art that invokes new experiences through experiments with scale, mobility, built space, and modes of human engagement in public spaces. But at the base, what I believe is that public interactives are significant cultural technologies that are very subtly but surely influencing the technological literacies of the future. So to this end, what I'm doing now is kind of doing the basic research, which is creating a taxonomy of public interactives from those that are probably the, the least interactive to, I think, those that are the most. Um, this joins forces with the urban screen kind of domain of research that people are um, kind of now really engaging in. These are shots from my study of um, Shanghai and the urban screen showing up in Shanghai. I look at, and this again, large-scale projections. This was a piece of public art that was done in 2007 in New York. Been looking at interactive light works, ours electronica, the building that you can play with playlists off your iPad, the light shows that you can program. Responsive walkways are another, for me, example of a public interactive that is less interactive and more just responsive to the kind of the number of bodies and the movement of bodies through a space. Interactive sculptures, many of the pieces that we built for the XFR exhibit were like the dog was a piece of interactive sculpture. I believe we're going to see more of these show up in our public civic um, kind of media scapes. Um, probably some of the most um, kind of cutting-edge work are things like um, Rafael Lozano Hemmer's work in relational architecture, where we're actually starting to think about the details of what interactive architecture really will mean for a human being who is the 
occupant or participant in the building. Right now, interactive architecture is very much um, concerned with building information systems. Makes perfect sense. Sensor nets that kind of envelop the entire building. My question is, when that computation gets out of the walls and makes the walls interactive, what kind of experiences will we have? And um, Raphael calls this relational architecture, that it will, we will not simply inhabit kind of architectural spaces. We will start to have relationships with them mediated by our ability to communicate with spaces. I lost my feed again. There's some weak link somewhere here. There's a loose wire. We got one loose wire somewhere. Um, a couple things that, let's see if I can get there. Yeah. So we're starting to see this show up in interactive advertisements, walk-up advertisements, things like that, that are um, um, interestingly using games as kind of attract kind of devices and so on. I went to the Shanghai uh, World Expo and spent several weeks documenting the new public interactives that were on display there as the kind of infrastructure of the futures on display, which is what happens at expos. Um, there were many new, new experiences that I'm calling walk-up games. These are very casual, casual non-kind of kiosk-based games where you're, in this case, they were specialized devices, but where the idea is your ubiquitous interface device, your smartphone and so on, will provide you a kind of casual, um, spontaneous, synchronous experience with strangers. But you'll be game playing kind of in embodied space. Um, if you haven't seen this, I'll just show you just a little bit of it. I, hope it will show. This is an example of architectural cinema, cinema in the 360 degrees. This was the, the, um, the, the, the gift that Saudi Arabia brought to China in a very kind of courtly fashion. It was the largest and most expensive pavilion there. People waited in line 13 hours to get in to see this from the very moment that the, um, that the uh, expo opened. And it was, um, it was an incredible engineering feat, as well as an incredible kind of media feat, as well as an incredible spectacle, you know, at the, uh, kind of at the World Expo. They had a complete oasis on the top and 24 screens kind of arrayed in this space to create a kind of walk-through IMAX movie. So the ceiling was projected, the walls were projected, the floor was projected, and viewers were moved through the movie on a uh, moving walkway. It took about 15 minutes to see the entire movie. It was incredibly immersive. Can you, can you turn it down? this if I do this. Yeah, there we go. Start to see. 
Um, there was no, um, it was all just ambient music. Um, and the narrative was really kind of how, um, note the visual kind of diversity of Saudi Arabia from the most natural landscapes to the most built, kind of built environments. So this was a very, again, very kind of popular and um, kind of spectacularized experience of new media. With beautiful transitions and, you know, and again, kind of sensorial effects. So that's under the floor. And then the, the project that, uh, that I'm working on more specifically now as a designer uh, and as part of a kind of a new research effort um, has to do with the, the infrastructures of public intimacy. So as I move forward and I start thinking about a transformed urban space where interactive architecture and sentient buildings and things that are not just responsive but actually in, engage um, people in dialogue and are the structured um, kind of uh, infrastructures for conversations, um, I'm interested in how do we bridge the scale of the human body to the scale of the building and looking at the kind of intermediate devices. And I've, I've been studying this again for a while um, and talk about it in the, in the book in one of the um, chapters called Public Interactives that traces the, uh, the genealogy of this fascination or this kind of topic back to Charles and Ray Eames as kind of early information designers, among the first who started and set up the conventions for interactive museum exhibits. They set up conventions that interactive museum exhibit designers live with now. So I go back, trace that back from, um, from Charles and Ray Eames through the early and many kind of generations of kiosk design to the new surfaces that are showing up that were... Um, um, this is Microsoft Surface 1, but the new Microsoft Surface 2 that's coming out. Um, there's a sketch for a new uh, laser-based um, interactive device that's about 12 feet long by 3 feet wide that I'm building some new applications for. And then here's a piece that I'm working on now that was conceptualized 10 years ago, and it took me this long to get some money to do it. We build unusual and eye-catching devices and exhibits that help communicate new technology ideas to the public. Each of our devices combines the best of art, science, design, and engineering. The Omni Tilty Table is an interactive device that consists of a table with an image projected on its surface. A viewer navigates the image simply by tilting the table top. Because the Tilty Table is ideal for viewing large, spatialized images, we developed an example of how the tilty table could be used to view panels of the AIDS Memorial Quilt. We call this version of the table Quilty. It allows a viewer to move through an expansive image of the quilt panels that are digitally stitched together, just as the real quilt panels are laid out one next to the other in a large area when on display. When a viewer centers a panel on the table and pauses for a few seconds, more information about that panel could be displayed on the tabletop. We're also developing a search function that will allow a viewer to locate an individual panel. We think the quilty will provide an evocative experience for viewers of the AIDS Memorial quilt who may not ever have the opportunity to view the actual quilt in its entirety. 
Okay, so the story about this is that this video was done in 2002. I have had it in my portfolio. I've tried to find funding for it, tried to find funding for it. It wasn't until the NEH Digital Humanities Startup Grants came about that I, and then, and I cleared some time that I sent in a proposal and they funded it. So we're working on this right now in collaboration with the Names Foundation in Atlanta. And this is doing what the digital humanities projects often do, which is pushing the boundaries of computer science. So here's, you know, we've got this database of 6,000 images of high-res images. Each image has eight panels on it. So right now the Names Foundation has 48,000 panels digitized, but in blocks of eight, so 6,000 blocks. And what we want to do is get down to the level of being able to select out any one of those eight panels from any one of those 6,000 images. And we want to enable people to go from the aerial photograph view of the entire quilt laid out with some scale markers as if it were laid out again on the, on the Mall of Washington. The last time it was laid out, it was in 1996. So we want to enable people to go from the kind of bird's eye view of the entire quilt laid out all the way down to an individual panel where you can then rest and then re, you know, get information about the name of the panel and so on. We also um, are working on the integration of two databases that have not been integrated, which is the metadata about all of these panels and the image database. The only connection right now is the accessioning number. So we're working also on that. And the issue that we're pushing the computer sciences on is the visual processing for um, being able to produce and recreate these, uh, these kind of virtual quilts based on different search criteria that literally take a panel from any of the 6,000 images, do the processing, virtualize it, and lay it out. So the digital startup money um, is just giving us enough to build a prototype. But in fact, that prototype is probably going to go to Washington, D.C. in June when the quilt, parts of the quilt will be on display again as part of the 2012 Smithsonian Folklife Festival. So based on that, then we're going to write a digital implementation grant, digital um, humanities implementation grant, to actually do the fuller version of a robust search function, solve the visualization kind of processing question. So this means actually getting money enough to build, build in some expert help from computer scientists. And um, then the other project, or the other part of this is that the um, Names Foundation, a very beleaguered, you know, kind of nonprofit foundation, has 58 file drawers of ephemera that hasn't been digitized that can tell the stories of these panels that the panels themselves don't tell. And so one of the things we were talking about was a distributed big humanities project where you'd ask every humanities you know, unit across the country or the world to adopt a file drawer and that we would create the protocol and whatever digitizing equipment they would need to digitize the material in one file drawer. And, of course, we'd have to build the database, the content management, and so on and so forth. But the idea is that this can only be done with a distribution of units. No one unit can do this. And no, certainly not a small startup company, or I mean a small nonprofit. So, so we're starting to see this as kind of the beginning of a big integrated effort in the humanities to do something that um, really has no monetary value, but has extreme cultural value. 
it's one of the kind of the kind of first um, examples of a large kind of interactive memorial. I've got two or three ideas behind that that are um, that people are now starting to think about rather than building a single memorial in one place for the you know portraits or the you know the fallen troops of the Gulf War and so on. Um, how about digital memorials that can be kind of reproduced in different places? Anyway, so in conclusion, I'm not going to do this one. That's another project. Um, here are some of the research vectors that I kind of, kind of research I keep up on, research that I try to, you know, keep in my files. Um, so research on natural user interfaces and so on, augmented reality. So if you were asking things like, well, what are the topics of this research? The research is very broad, and you could cut into this work kind of from any one of these perspectives, right? Um, including kind of urban media ecologies and how, um, you know, so the questions I have are how does the presence of interactive surfaces and the multiplication of spatial and visually saturated media flows, how does it change the experience of, of urban space? And when all walls are written, what stories will they tell? Meaning when every wall in here can be covered with a virtual story or a, a, an AR story, what stories will it tell, and who has the right to write on the, on the wall, and who will read the million story building. I have a sense that everybody's writing, but not very many people are actually reading. And then, you know, I continue the kind of throughput are, what are the contemporary emergent media forms? What do we need to be paying attention to? That's one of the reasons I'm so excited about getting to visit here, because in some respects, this is one of the places where these, uh, these future forms are, are tested and prototyped. Um, and then how do we do research on emergent forms, things that aren't yet out in the world, when you might have one, two, three people using them? And then I continue to ask the question, how does cultural theory contribute not just to the criticism of and an assessment of the implications, but actually to the design of new techno-cultural experiences? Thank you. have questions, please use the mics because this is being recorded. And maybe I'll just start with one. Um, when you held your book up, you uh, lamented that the DVD in the back would, would be shortly rendered into a dusty bit of obsolete technology. Yes. Yeah. And obsolescence came up a few times, as did the term cultural memory. And I'm interested in the tension between the two. I mean, these are very exciting projects, mm -hmm. and you know, we do a lot of them here, and the double mm -hmm. bind we find ourselves in is Either the technologies are not very well spread, they work great in prototype, but no one else has the stuff, so we're kind of limited in terms of cultural penetration. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, even if the stuff is out there, something as ubiquitous as a, as a, as a DVD, for example, mm -hmm. has a pretty limited shelf life, uh, at least in archival terms and probably even in real terms. So how, how do you reconcile that and the kinds of investment that are needed to push the frontiers of these, of these um, digital engagements with culture when really they seem more fragile than any form we've had to date. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, in, in fact, that's one of the, you know, the kind of the key themes of why write a book in a digital age, because as I looked at all the archival media that was available to um, record the insights and to even say this project was done, um, the print book remains one of our more enduring forms. Uh, and there are, and, and there are some key players. I mean, we talked about this at, at lunch. Um, there are some key players who are, you know, invested in digitizing, meaning bringing this format to a new format. 
and keeping taking on the project of archiving the archive. Right. So I wrote the book because in the you know in 18 months this will be all that is left of all of this work, and that's probably okay in many respects because none of this was done, you know, to be everlasting monumental. Things they were done as research prototypes or you know or thought experiments and so um, it does raise it does raise the issue about well why do this the digital stuff now and well you do the digital stuff now because that's how our imaginations get get exercised and that's how the imagination moves and takes shape and takes up a new question and explores a new possibility and so on that these these pieces, I mean, there are very few pieces that would kind of last as enduring kind of uh, markers of, of the highest values but of, of culture and so on, but they, the pieces, though, make new thoughts possible. And those thoughts and the intellectual kind of process of the thinking, the thoughts, and the questions and the provocations and so on, that's the throughput that is important for culture. Now, I think some of the artifacts are, are also important. I mean, so the new, you know, the, the newly reopened um, Computer History Museum in, you know, in Silicon Valley, very late in the day did someone think about doing a computer history museum, and then very late in that, the day did someone at the Computer History Museum remember they needed to archive software. They weren't archiving software. They, you know, and so because they were focused on technology you know, only as an object, not as, you know, so I think these, you know, some of these pieces will be archived and they'll remain, and especially as the Library of Congress now starts working on, digi you know, archiving digital um, scholarship, you know, in the, kind of the digital uh, library effort. But for the most part, these things are not going to last forever. They're going to go away. So we need some other way to record the thinking that went into them and then the insights that came out of them. One of the reasons I'm interested in the public interactives project is that public interactives are very, are very ephemeral. I mean, especially if they're done by artists. They're often very site-specific. They have very short temporality. They're, they're often not documented in any, or archived or in any official way. They're, you know, they're based on an artist documenting his or her own work. And if that art, artist's website doesn't stay up, the museum doesn't archive the public art that goes in and goes on in the, you know, in the, in the very city that they're in. You know, so I'm interested in, and I've got a, a whole wiki that's trying to document these pieces of the antecedents of contemporary public interactives, because the digital is so ephemeral. You know, and you know, obviously we get it upside down because we think that the digital is so permanent. The other thing that it um, gives me a chance to talk about is the whole process of curating culture and what stuff does get remembered and brought forward versus what gets forgotten. Like, to go back, and if you look at um, and you search for anything on the uh, UN Conference on Women, um, there's no video archive. There's no video f of that Beijing conference. So, you know, women have over time understood, as have other groups who don't have access to the, you know, the highest end equipment, that my histories and the histories that matter to me are not often the ones that get reproduced and brought forward. So it, 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 it allows us to have all kinds of discussions about cultural memory, what's permanent, what's not, what gets brought forward to a new platform and what gets left behind, what continues to be a labor of love and a hobby 
work of archive or the work of the fans, like Henry's work and so on, um, versus what gets archived through official, official institutions. <clears throat> Thanks for that talk. I, I'm I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this. I guess this last question, this cultural theory and the design of technocultural experiences. Because you, you started out saying that uh, you're really interested in a, a manifesto of taking culture seriously. And I'm guessing I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about that side of it. When you when you say cultural theory, what are you thinking about, and how is it how how is it best applied to rethinking what innovation might be? Well, in some respects, the whole book is about that in the sense that, um, that that answer, how does cultural theory contribute, doesn't get answered in theory. It gets answered in practice. So it gets, it gets explored in what gets designed. And in the book, what I do for a couple different pieces is document the designing process and where the discussions that were kind of informed by cultural theory kind of came up, and then what comes out of those conversations. So I could answer that question with respect to how we got to 16 reading devices, you know, and how kind of our cultural theoretical digestion of the scene of reading, the history of reading, and so on, how that led to a very kind of rational kind of processing of figuring out what kind of devices to build or to or what we're missing or what devices we weren't going to pay attention to at all or what reading modalities we weren't going to pay attention to. So that, that question gets ans answered in kind of a specific way. Kind of in a general way, I have, um, I have an approach, a methodology that I call cultural reverse engineering, which what I argue is that there is, and, and this is not anything that designers in really you know, good, interesting kind of designers haven't argued as well, which is to understand, and this is why I connect it to the notion of reverse engineering, to understand kind of you know, how to build something new. You take an example of the nearest thing and you reverse engineer it into its parts and pieces and you understand its business and what, what's business and what's not and, and its functionality and so on. And I just want to push that kind of process of reverse engineering back further than the thing itself to how the thing itself comes to be here, how it already has meaning, and how the meanings that cohere in that thing, that it's a technology, that it's a piece of high technology, that it's an enabling technology, that it's a, you know, uh, um, uh, an expensive technology or that it's a, or it's a necessary technology or, you know, how does those meanings already get set up before the thing even comes to us to be reversed engineered. And so partly the way in which theory kind of comes into this is um, kind of the cultural theorists have different paradigms for getting at the cultural meaning of objects. So, you, can, you know, whether it's going through like Irving Goffman or Garfinkel or... Um, uh, kind of product semantics and Klaus Krippendorf or so on. There are different ways in which cultural theorists have... That's my yeah, so when, yeah. When you use the word cultural theory, who, who, I mean, I come at it from cultural anthropology, I yeah. guess. And, and so when we use, 
we use that word, we, you know, we're, we're talking about fieldwork and ethnography and, yeah. and, and that that's an approach to culture. But it seems like it's, it's maybe a little, it seems a little different than what you're driving at or maybe not. No, I, I, think I, it, I mean, I think it's, which, it's where your touchstones are. Well, okay, my, my cultural theories touchstones is I was trained in a kind of Birmingham approach to cultural studies, so coming out of a kind of a sociology literature, right, that kind of, um, that tradition. I was also trained in interpretive sociology, um, so I also have ethnographic kind of background, so that would have been Goffman and Anselm Strauss and grounded theory and, you know, that, so, and culture is kind of the webs of significance that people live within. So, and it's the webs of significance, which is an anthropological understanding of culture that I'm interested in bringing into the reverse engineering process. What are the webs of significance that that object is already embedded in, such that, because I believe those two are things that can be designed or are resources for some, designing something different. Thank you. Can I follow up on that a little bit? Um, one of the places you were presenting some wonderful uh, lacuna w was in that absence of the humanist, but art was there. And what we're talking about now, too, seems to me, I see a lot of it happening at our School of Architecture and Urban Planning, um, but often not fertilizing with people in humanities, per se. Uh, and I'm thinking, where are the fracture points? You're, you're trying to yeah. emphasize the positive collaborations, and I applaud that. Um, where did you find, as I find when I work with actual artists, actual artists as opposed to somebody who does work at the cusp, um, that you hit the wall and you felt like a cultural theorist all of a sudden? Right, right, <laughs> right, not a designer. Well, I mean, with my architect colleagues, um, I'll tell you where the fault line is. It's on experience. I'm about experience. I'm about the architecture of experience and the experience that is an embodied way in which we organize the world. <laughs> and um, that's not so interesting to them. So, so with, with my, you know, so because I talk with them about this notion of, you know, what happens when this not, is not just a responsive surface but becomes an interactive surface. And, um, and my interest is in what's the experience for the people. Um, so that's, that's one fault line. Um, um, I think when we were in the, in the research kind of setting and so on, the, at, at Park, for example, some of the fault lines were um, trying to operationalize maybe what culture meant. So... Because it, it's cultures like education, who can be against it, right? It's such a positive value, and and so. But when you you know you start with the premises, I'm I would like to raise cultural questions about what we're doing and so on. Um, to some engineers that or computer scientists that I would work with, um, it sounded like I think their their interpretation was um, I was going to do cultural evaluation, and that it was only going to be negative. Or it was, you know, and so getting over that this wasn't, this wasn't to, you know, to, to do a grade sheet about how positive or not one of their projects was, but to ask questions about what are likely implications and are those implications worthy or interesting to talk about at this point 
in your design process. So I think the, the miscommunication or misunderstanding about what is cultural criticism, what is, you know, again, what is cultural theory and who, that, that's almost like almost too much. But, you know, cultural criticism and to raise cultural questions, you know, is somehow um, that you're just going to find the negative stuff. So trying to get at that this could be a resource, that was the, there, there was the fault point. It's like, no, I wanted to say this could be a resource, that we might, having these conversations might, in, you know, in me asking what are naive questions about the underlying computer science or the engineering or might actually get us to think something differently. Thanks very much. Um, enjoyed that. Um, I was intrigued by this concept of the future of reading because reading is, uh, has a great past, of course. Uh, and when you talk about the f future of reading, uh, are you really talking about uh, the changing media of reading? Are you, uh, what are some of the major trends that you see as potential changes in reading? And uh, in what ways do those uh, changes uh, inform your work? Well, one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is to get my um, one of my graduate research assistants to um, videotape someone reading different kinds of electronic media because reading is such an internal subjective kind of experience, it's hard to get any kind of evidence to point to. So... So we're just trying to videotape literally when you are confronted with a digital document, what are the many ways you can read it? So it's like EPUB reading with gesture versus reading hyper, a hypercard stack and so on. Um, so trying to just document in a digital age, how does reading manifest differently than the reading of kind of a tactile device with the, kind of with the hand? Um, so we're trying to document that. I am, so I'm actually, actually really concerned. I mean, here's how it impacts me, is that I'm really concerned about reading literacies now and not as much so about authoring literacies. And that's because, especially with the work that I've, I've been um, exposed to among digital humanists and so on, I think a lot of people are writing and not a lot of people are reading. And I think they're not reading because it, literally these new exquisitely beautiful produced digital documents are incomprehensible to the most, the smartest people I know. Like I sit down in front of a, of a, of a digital journal essay that's been highly designed, and I know the author, I know, I trust the editors, I know I have good visual semantics literacy, and I have a hard time trying to get a sense of what the kind of the intellectual nuggets are, you know, separate from what the scholarship might be. Just, I, I don't even know it's kind of what, what am I getting, and if what I'm getting is what is supposed to be gotten or is what's on offer and so on. So even as I kind of reflect on my own reading practices now, I, I know I run up against 
um, a real literacy kind of illiterate, illiteracy. I was going to say literacy shortage, but it's an illiteracy. I don't know how to read many of the contemporary kind of forms. I certainly also know I don't know how to read some of the contemporary forms that are a generational issue. Like, I, you know, I look at a World of Warcraft dashboard, and I don't have the literacy to, to, to know what's going on. I'm not a part of that community, and so on. So... I, I guess where, where the future of reading and thinking about that, um, that project really impacted me is how do people throughout their lives learn how to read over and over and over again? So it's one thing to, you know, to think reading was something that happened in grade school, and once you learned how to read, the rest of the problem was really learning how to write more sophisticatedly and think more sophisticated. But I think... For me, what has kind of drawn my attention is how do I learn to read these new forms that come, now come? And I know because I trust the makers or the context, or I know there's value there, and I literally don't have the coding or decoding skills to get at the value. And so, so one of the things that this changes my thing is this is why I would do this and show you some of the website stuff here. Even though it's there, you could see it. It's because I believe that actually the way one learns how to read is when you get somebody doing an expert reading, especially these new forms. So it's almost like performing the reading. And now you know this is where you click and so on. So it's not like it's self-evident how you interact with that website, even though we tried to make it as self-evident as possible. But in part, it's a part of reading literacy. We're using new conventions and... And if I used old conventions, if I just put all the text in an EPUB, I would be so limited in what I was able to do in a designerly expressive way that, you know, yes, I, people would be able to read, but the, the, the expressive kind of possibilities or the exploration of the expressive possibilities would be just incremental. So the way it's really influenced me is really trying to pay attention to how, and how do professional writers learn how to read again? so that they could write in these new authoring environments, like Scalar or Sophie or so on. There are are so many rich ideas in this work. I I really love it. I love the approach you're taking to design and the way that you're thinking about sort of diversity in the design process and all of that. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you would apply some of your work um, in a context of of low-tech design. So a lot of the work that you did... Um, at Park, it's you know it's it's future demo design. You're working with high-end technology, things that aren't necessarily out in the world yet or commercially available. And when they are, or when they do become available, it's you know technologies that are available to institutional actors, um, that kind of stuff. What what does what does this kind of work look like when you think about designing with people who don't often have access to participating in technological design processes? Um, that's the other new project that I didn't talk about that's also been going on for the last couple of years, which is, um, uh, so this was very much a project looking at design from those who are privileged and institutionally positioned as designers, even if it was myself as a faculty member kind of taking on a design project. So um, for the, since about 2008, I've been looking at um, tinkering in a digital age. And so the next book-ish thing that's, um, that's kind of fomenting is a book called Ways of the Hand. This is actually the, the 
one of the images for it. Ways of the hand tinkering as a mode of knowledge production. So looking now at innovation that we might say comes from the ground up. Um, in 2009, I did a documentation, not a documentary, but a documentation of, of Maker Faire. And um, I've got about 12, 15 short video postcards from Maker Faire and interviews with you know, Dale Dotery and stuff like that. So we're looking at Maker Faire. We're looking at hackerspace, um, kind of hackerspaces, the cultures of hackerspaces. Um, and the book project will, you know, will be multimodal, will have videos, interactive map, and so on. Um, but we'll also include a couple things um, coming from people who are looking at tinkering or hacking um, in international contexts. So, so one of the things, I go back to China for a couple months in January, and there I go and, and look as tinkering as a way of life. So now tinkering not as a kind of um, um, a payoff for kind of a leisure kind of leisure time, excess leisure time, but tinkering as a kind of cultural logic. You know, and I have, I'm not a Chinese um, scholar myself, but I have a, a well, you probably knew um, Kara Wallace. Yeah, so Kara Wallace and I are looking at tinkering in the Chinese context, where it's tinkering as a way of life, tinkering, you know, as a kind of, um, kind of privileged mode of manufacturing, tinkering and reverse engineering, you know, kind of going kind of hand in hand as a, uh, a way in which consumer electronics get replicated and reproduced and made for black markets or off markets and so on. Uh, so there's, there's a whole nother project, I think, to, to go on that does look at, um, at design at the kind of more um, everyday, the, the quotidian everyday life. So I've got a couple different domains of that, yeah. Enjoyed your talk, uh, and uh, the question I have is just uh, uh, well from the title "Designing Culture," and so we talked a, a bit about this. But of course, with uh, so many many different di dimensions and definitions of culture, can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about uh, so the difference in designing for say hegemonic culture versus a subaltern culture? Is there also also different grain sizes of culture, you know, subculture, or say some you know, very particular uh, kind of uh, group of aficionados for something like you mentioned uh, hypertext uh, fiction versus some kind of broader sense of uh, of uh, culture? We've had a, a speaker talk about something like design of uh, narratives for uh, uh, Aboriginal peoples uh, in, in Australia. So, can you talk a little bit about lessons you've learned for you know, those different uh, uh, dimensions of culture? Uh, again, the hegemonic versus uh, the, the, the subaltern and the kind of large grain or national or international versus uh, the very small kind of a local, maybe hobbyist uh, subculture. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, part of the part of the China project is kind of what. Um, what can we, you know, so I take these insights that I've learned about design that came out of a very particular research context and a particular set of biographical experiences and in some respects test them or probe about whether they hold in, you know, in other design contexts. So here's a simple one. You know, I want to argue design is inherently multidisciplinary. And when I look at um, hacker spaces or we go into China and look at some of the um, kind of pop-up shops, 
you know, where people are reverse engineering and tinkering um, with consumer electronics and so on. Um, these aren't interdisciplinary efforts. They're often actually solo efforts. There may be some collaboration in the sense that there's a community that support or a family effort or it's a family, you know, pop-up shop or so on, but it's, it's, it's very, it has a very different inflection than that. And so I don't have those insights yet, but in fact, that's kind of what we're pushing on. Likewise, with some of the um, looking at the hacker spaces and the different logics that of, um, of, of hacker spaces in terms of um, the formation of community, how closed the community is, how open the community is. Um, now, this is a, a sense about, um, you know, people participating in the design who aren't credentialed as designers, but they can participate in the design if they're part of the community, in some cases. In other cases, you can participate in the design if you're not part of the community. So there's, we're starting to create a more of kind of an analytics, a set of analytics, like, you know, opened and closed, um, you know, um, scripted, free form, you know, to try to identify that those insights I had about design were, were very context and contextually specific. And now, what might I say? Like, oh, okay, design, you know, can, there's, there's a continuum, open to closed. In the Xerox Park situation, who could participate was a very closed, kind of a, a, a closed community, closed set of credentials, closed set, it wasn't a free-for-all or, a, and, you know, they didn't even do user-centric design. You know, it was very much the design was the brainchild of this special group of people. So you can move, you know, down midway through and open closed. You'll see people who are doing user-centered design that is a little bit more open to those who are doing design in a community space or an urban, you know, pop-up shop kind of space have a much more um, uh, kind of individualist kind of sense of design. So I think my question is a bit of a follow-up to the um, to Jim's question about the future of reading. Um, and you mentioned in as when you were bringing up the future of reading or reading literacy, also I think you called it authoring literacy. So I want to ask you to talk about that a little bit more. I think part of um, what you've you've talked about is you know the need for people to, in, including writers themselves, to learn to um, read different different genres, different forms that result from new media. Um, but I wonder if it's also about redefining what authoring is and you know part of what you're describing I think you had suggested a few times that you're concerned that there are more writers than readers or I want to ask you to to expand on that a little bit because it seems to me like like part of what the future in, of reading involves is perhaps renegotiating those categories entirely into something like user or something else so um, well, I think the you know the the category of reader and writer are part of kind of those categories are themselves kind of infrastructural. You know they and historical exactly and and historical and um, I mean writing. There was something that you so, sorry I can't do that. Um, something that you said that. Connected with my interest in the intermediaries who are now going to stand between writers and readers or mediate the relationship of writers and readers. And it's a where our previous infrastructural subject would have been an editor, 
newspaper editor, journal editor, book editor, you know, so on. In science, it would have been a peer review panel or a lab director, or so on. And those subjects are, the editor function is changing, I think, to a more um, curatorial function. So one of the, the shifts that I see between readers and writers is the curator, the, the increasing role of the curator um, who, you know, who, who does things like, you know, curates on a blog all the interesting things that are going on and can be found in, you know, in the kind of uh, blogosphere. And they kind of post and then they become a kind of cur- curator of the web on a particular topic. So, you know, curators, uh, I mean, and then, and then they take different, you know, different forms or different inflections. So, um, you know, they're, they're public opinion makers. Sometimes what they're curating is to promote a certain political kind of uh, set of values or a political agenda. Um, sometimes they're, um, you know, trend, kind of trend watchers and cultural watchers who are really interested in, you know, something right, you know, like the interactive architecture site is everything that has to do with interactive architecture, good, bad, indifferent, but whatever. So it's a, a kind of curatorial as archive kind of site. Then there's the media archaeologists, so the web archaeologists who are really, so who are out, out there kind of watching, keeping track, you know, again, archiving, digging things out, trying to find things. Then there's the information visualizers, you know, who I think are also mediating in an interesting way between writers and readers. So that now, um, you know, again, you know, when I read a, um, and I'm confronted with an interesting informatic, um, I, you know, it's, they're actually much easier often to read than some of these interactive narratives or interactive journal articles. They're very, you know, very potent in terms of kind of the representation of large data and relationships among data and so on. So they're easier to read, and they've done a lot of work for me as a reader. those who are doing those visualizations. So I I guess what I kind of see is that there's there's a whole range of intermediaries who are working between writers and then readers. So, for example, a writer can write 140 characters' tweets, and you can be following them and, and so on and so forth. And so Twitter because of the, you know they stand in and they become an intermediary where now I can f- see people to follow and I can follow you know people in a certain you know way and that allows me to just get their channel so I don't know so there are many ways of writing and writing is definitely changing it's certainly not you know not what it was you know even 15 years ago um, and so too are the people in the in the middle who are helping us get access to many more ways of writing. So following up, because that seems to be my role in life, um, on that, to to, to tie it back to your work on gender, I mean, it seems 
kind of obvious, but I don't know if you, if you know the recent work, uh, the book on, on the history of women's literacies, sort of basically from about 1600 to 1900, and, and what would have happened if women had played a, women's actual literacies had been acknowledged in the great print revolution move. Mm-hmm. It seems to me we're talking about a moment where all these intermediaries, mm-hmm. for, by and large, mm-hmm. are, are a certain subset of the population Mm-hmm. by and large, right. um, which right. would seem to link with your earlier work. Right. Um, and right. yet that isn't being made visible. The, and what happened in that process, to link it also with the issue of, of literacies and, and who else has been an intermediary, it's been teachers, right? Yeah. So yes, you didn't absolutely. name teachers there. Absolutely. So we're in the moment again where, if you think back to the 17th century, say, women taught children that which didn't need to be taught in a public institutional way, yes, uh, right, right. and that knowledge that was very accessible ways of learning has right. been obliterated from the official histories pretty much of, of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we are at another pivotal place. Mm-hmm. Is that specific work being done by anyone to think about the gendering of the intermediaries and... Are we, in other words, reenacting the mistake of three centuries ago by not talking about it? <laughs> I'm going to have to say yes. I mean, I'm going to first of all say no, it's not being done, and yes, we are. Two data points. One is I was at a, con- um, a kind of convening la- a, like a year ago, um, December, in Sydney of 20 feminists whose work has primarily been about technology. And um, there were two of us from the United States, a number from um, the UK, a number from Europe, a couple from South America. And, um, you know, I could name the names, you know, Judy Watchman and so on. And then a couple people couldn't, couldn't come, like Nina Lichty and so. But um, here was the lament. The lament was, here are these women. We we're, we're all kind of came, we we're all kind of post-Harawayan in the sense of having um, the guts to take on technology as a feminist topic, take it seriously, not dismiss it out of hand, take it seriously, get involved with it, get it really deeply engaged in it. Um, Some of us do policy work, some of us do design work, and so on. Some of us have been in industry as technologists and so on. So here we are, and um, we're, we're not even a loosely coupled network. We are no network. We are a network who knows each other's names, we have no regular contact with each other. And if, and if you went to find any of us, you wouldn't even know where to start because I'm in the cinema school and um, uh, Judy is, teaches at the London School of Economics and you know, in social policy and Nina's there and someone's there. It's like nobody is anywhere. We have all kind of some affiliation with a women's studies or a gender studies program, but those are beleaguered programs. You don't stand very there. One of the major you know, philosophical kind of thinkers on, you know, on kind of technology and science is a feminist physicist who's running the women's studies program, and she, nobody knows her work. I mean, she's like the best-kept secret. You know, it's like, so this is, this is the problem. There isn't, you know, under that kind of, kind of um, banner that are we watching for the kind of gendered distribution, the racial distribution of who's serving as our intermediaries. I don't think anybody's doing that. 
So we talked earlier about kind of the cultural divide between fields, let's say the humanities and some of the more technologically oriented uh, areas. And part of that Part of that gap, the part of the gap, the clove that's between those sometimes turns on the definitions of objects or how we think about technologies as working. And I mean, the gender issue raises another really interesting one. And and I, you know, I know that places like this are very interested in in trying to remedy to some extent, or at least address to some extent, gender inequality, especially in the in the engineering sectors, let's say, in hard sciences. Um, and I'm curious as to what you think that's about. Is that about a representation issue? Is that about just people not noticing? Is it about an organization issue mm-hmm. that you guys don't have a network and should? Is it about uh, a literacy issue that there are skill sets involved here that are that are maybe not evenly distributed across, you know, whether whether yeah, whether ethnic race, minorities yeah. or, or yeah. Uh, across genders? Um, there's a lot of ways to sort of think about what's happening there, but we do see. We know that the games industry is desperate to pull in more women and is able to to some extent, and yet the AAAs are driven by men. We know, we learned that a lot of um, television um, uh, uh, viewing decisions are driven by Twitter feeds, and we know that the predominant cohort that's out there making, that's Twittering, that's tweeting, is 18 to 34-year-old males. There's an, that is to say, in that case, an absence of a set of voices. But, so where do you see remedies for this, or where do you see even causalities? I guess causalities yeah, causalities, before remedies. Yeah, um well, I think it's um, I, 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 imperatives. I think it's it's certainly about literacies. I mean, I, and the problem is, is of course, this, the you know this the situation of Northern America is different than perhaps the situation of India, where equal number of men and women actually go into engineering programs and so on. So it's you know there's a whole kind of socialization effort, and so now what happens afterwards? They get their engineering degrees and so on they move into a different kind of cultural, you know, kind of cultural situation. But in, you know, in North America, um, you know, it's about, it's, you know, it is about literacy levels. I mean, this was, this was Haraway's manifesto that, you know, we can't, we feminists can't seed technology as if it were, beca- or because it has masculinist, or it embodies masculinist values, which was what feminists were saying at the time. And what they were saying was, of course, con- creating the conditions whereby women were going, well, I want nothing to do with it. If everything in- inadvertently comes from the Department of Defense or leads to the Department of Defense, I want nothing to do with this. And Haraway's point was, guess what? You can't not have something to do with it. You live in this country. You're already embedded, right? So, so kind of the post-Haraway feminist response was to start taking technology seriously because the, pro- because the project needed to be getting women engaged in these technologies as informed users, makers, managers, engineers, thinkers, you know, researchers, and so on. So, and this is, I, I wrote a piece, which you probably should read because you, you got to vet me for this. It's called Teaching in the Belly of the Beast, Feminism in the Best of All Places. And it's about my time at Georgia Tech, and what, yeah, and what the problems were in not having a women's studies program because that was absolutely not going to happen at Georgia Tech because their project was to keep women in their engineering programs, not give women students another major to be in. So all we could get at Georgia Tech was a minor in women in technology, and that was absolutely the right response. In that context, the right response was to teach my courses, science, technology, and gender, to women who were going to stay in the sciences, 
biology, engineering, business, architecture, and so on. Because I needed, and, that, and I talk about that in the articles, that you, know, you have to, as a feminist, you know, make them aware of the, the difficult histories, the way in which technology has not privileged women, has in fact erased women's contributions, as you were saying. At the same time, try to encourage them to go into these fields, because these fields aren't going to change unless they're there. But then the next question is, the fields aren't going to change because they're there because of something biologically kind of in, inherent in the women. I mean, it's not like there's any biological kind of endowment that women, they're not more peace-loving, they're not more cooperative, and so on. It's that they are literally products of a different socialization pattern. They have a double consciousness, triple consciousness at times. They're going to bring different biographical experiences to the designing, making, science, research process. Not because, again, being a woman makes them any more intuitive or you know, or, or, or skeptical or whatever, but because they have been socialized differently. But, I mean, other people also will have been socialized differently and need to be brought into these kind of professions as well. So there's a literacy issue. There's a, you know, there, I mean, for the NSF, you know, the, the STEM initiatives for the NSF, I mean, it's a workplace. It's a workforce issue for them. We don't have enough, you know, we don't have enough people qualified to take the positions we're going to need them to take to keep this country, the NSF's project, this country on track. We need far more computer scientists and so on. And if you've saturated young males as a kind of population to bring into your classrooms, then you have to start looking at young women, right? I mean, because it, we've gotten as many young males as we can, and now where else, do, how do we grow? Well, we grow two ways, and this is what they're doing. Females and international students to just bring them into the pipeline to get computer science degrees so that they can go out to be the computer scientists that they're projecting that we'll need for the workforces of the future. One, one footnote. We yeah. enough whites. Yes. We have not tapped enough underrepresented yeah. minority males. I believe, uh, and that, I think that's true across the... Across the I mean, at, at Georgia Tech will probably would argue... I mean, Georgia Tech actually prides itself as having a different ratio over all its programs, but... I think that's true across the engineering schools, yeah. yeah. So it's literacy levels, it's workplace, workforce levels. Um, yeah. Well, Ann Balsamo, thank, thank you, you very much. Uh, appreciate you coming here. Thanks. Thank you.